Thank you, Brother Stanley, and thank you, Worship Ministry, today for leading us. I know many of you already look at the sermon notes early. If you receive the church emails, you can see what's coming, and every now and again I get text from each of you saying, hey, I'm ready for this or looking forward to this, that type of, that type of thing. But uh, a few months ago, there was one of these sermons that I did that had a lot of notes, which is one of those today. And I had it laid out at the house, and one of my daughters saw it, and she said, what is that? And I said, oh, that's the notes for Sunday morning service. And she started thumbing through how many pages it was. She said, oh, Daddy, God help us. Uh, <laughs> um, one of my dear friends that is now with the Lord and one of your dear friends as well, Brother Don McCain, on multiple occasions would shake my hand on Sunday morning and say, be brief, brother, be beautiful. <laughs> so thus you come to this place where this is a big outline. And let me tell you why I'm doing this. Well, for some reason I decided to do this in a three-part series. It probably should have been four. Uh, but I think it's important for the church of God to think about the Word of God and learn how to integrate how we think about the Word of God with what is happening in our place and in our time. I do believe that God has allowed each of us to live at a specific time in history because this is where He wants us. In fact, I don't see how you can read Paul's address to the Greeks in Athens in Acts 17 and come away with any other conclusion that God has placed me and God has placed you here for such a time as right now. And I tend to be an optimist. I tend to be an optimist. And uh, I'm frankly discouraged when I'm around pessimistic people because Jesus is on the throne and we are in his hand. So even in the darkest of days, and I've been there by the way, we have something to be grateful for. But with that said, I heard it said this week at the convention, and I second this, Dr. Jamie Dew said this at the Mississippi Baptist Convention Pastors Conference, and as he said it, I thought, that is right. I concur with that completely. He said, wherever I look in culture right now, whether it be to politics, whether it be to economics, whether it be the international order, whether it be to social institutions, whether it be to education, whether it be the entertainment industry, he said, every place I look discourages me. There is not a single place, he said, where I can look in culture and say, I am so blessed to be a part of the day and time of which this is going on. Because it seems like we live in a time of decay. And it seems like we live in a time where the darkness is no longer creeping, 
but it's running and it's rushing around us. Now, you don't hear me speak about this subject all that much just because it is so chilling. And I like to speak about the things that God has given to us to encourage us. But sober-mindedness is essential for wise living. Sober-mindedness, to be able to discern the times, is essential to be able to know how to live faithfully within them instead of sticking our heads in the sand. So I know this is a long message, and I know there's lots to talk about today. But here's another conviction of mine. If the church is going to continue to be relevant and effective in this age, and I believe it will be, the way we do church, yes, I love feeling good at church. I love being inspired at church. I love coming to church and having people speak to my emotional needs of the heart. And that's true. In fact, I probably dominantly do that as a pastor just because emotional needs weigh so heavy upon our hearts. But folks, if we're going to make it, we got to know the truth. And if we're going to know the truth, it's going to take work. And that means that not every sermon will be entertaining. Not every sermon will be fun to listen to. But every sermon is essential to discern the truth of the Word of God. I'm so blessed by each of you all because I know as your pastor, now for seven and a half years plus, you all love the Word of God. So my attempt here today is to deal with this big subject and attempt that we might be faithful in our day and our time. I would have you and invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 21 verses 33 through 45. Matthew chapter 21 verses 33 through 45 as I read to you a parable of Jesus. This is part two of how we, would think, how we should think about modern Israel. There are going to be things I do not deal with today because I just don't have time, but are pressing and they have to do with what is going on right now in Israel. I hope you will come tonight at 6 p.m. as I deal with more of those questions. But our main question is this, has the church replaced Israel? Has the church replaced Israel? Israel. Before I read the parable, there's a couple of statements that you need to know. We need to define two different terms. First is supersessionism. Supersessionism. This is the theological idea that the nation of Israel, as in ethnic Jews, has been superseded by the church as God's chosen covenant people. If you were to ask a Christian in our time, who are the chosen people of God? If you ask in America, many people are going to say Israel. If you ask in other parts of the world, or even many parts of America, they're going to say, of course, the chosen people of God is the church. Because the church has now, according to supersessionism, replaced the covenant people of God called Israel. And no longer is Israel as ethnic Jews, the covenant people of God. The only way, according to supersessionism, that Jews can be a part of God's covenant people is if they become Christians. So supersessionism is the theological idea that the nation of Israel has been superseded by the church as God's chosen covenant people. You probably also know supersessionism by its commonplace name, 
replacement theology. Replacement theology, another name for supersessionism. So, is it true? Are the supersessionists right? Has the church replaced Israel? Well, one of the favorite go-to parables for supersessionism is Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 45. And if, keep in mind, if you were a supersessionist or are a supersessionist, you're going to hear and understand why they draw this conclusion based on this parable. And Jesus says, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another, into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Of course, this is symbolizing the prophets that God sent Israel. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son, but when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir, come, let us kill him and have his inheritance, and they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Of course, symbolizing Jesus being crucified outside the city walls. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard, um, let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone, of course the stone is Christ, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now listen to verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard the parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. So, you can see how a supersessionist would interpret this parable as, oh, well, the people of Israel were replaced by the church because Israel crucified the very Son of God. And you cannot think of a more serious and more sinister sin than crucifying, killing God's very own son. And as supersessionists interpret, replacement theologians interpret this passage, it is clearly, doesn't Jesus say that now the kingdom is taken away from them and given to another and that the chief priests and the Pharisees perceived he was talking about them. Is that not true? And if it's true, aren't, I guess, the supersessionists right? I guess this parable does indicate that the church has replaced Israel after all. Well, I'll deal with that at the very end of this message. So I want to give you several things in this. Again, a lot of information, so buckle up, you can handle it. 
Supersessionist theology began around the turn of the first century. Supersessionist theology, remember supersessionism, the idea that the church has replaced Israel as the covenant people of God. Supersessionist theology began around the turn of the first century, so shortly after the year 100. Also, supersessionism grew out of early Jewish persecution of Christians or Jewish persecution of the early Christians. You can read about this in the Acts over and over again. The one that specifically is the most famous is Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8. And Saul, later known as Paul, this is before he became a Christian, and Saul approved of his execution. And if you know the book of Acts, who just got executed? Do you know? Stephen approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So supersessionism, the idea that the church has replaced Israel, grew out of Jewish persecution of early Christians. Also, supersessionism drew upon the destroyed temple in AD 70 as the sign of God's total rejection of Israel. We're going to look in Matthew chapter 23 in just a few moments, but when Jesus says, see that your house is left to you desolate, the temple is torn down, and the Jews are completely removed from doing sacrifices in Jerusalem, Jewish Peoples have not faithfully practiced the sacrificial system since the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Now, I want you to put your place, put yourself in the place of an early Christian. Let's say you're an early Christian and you're a Samaritan or you are a Greek or you are living in the Turkish regions all right, and you are an early Christian and you have been persecuted by the Jews. Perhaps the Jews stoned your dad for believing the gospel. Perhaps the Jews had done something destructive to your place of business in the first century, okay? And also, you now hear as an early first century Christian that the Jews' temple, the symbol of their religion has been raised to the ground where not one stone has been left upon the, the next. What would your conclusion be? Well, because the Jewish people crucified Christ, because the Jewish people not only crucified him, but rejected him and then persecuted the church, God destroyed their temple, ending their religion, so to speak, in their minds because they rejected Christ. And now because the Jewish people no longer have that epicenter symbolizing who they are as a nation in the temple, God has now turned his focus to the Gentiles. He has turned his focus to the church. Clearly, the church has replaced Israel. This is likely what you would think if you were a first century Christian. Supersessionism also became a viable became viable as distinguishing difference between Jews and Christians when the Jews were exiled from Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 135. The emperor Hadrian exiled the Jews from 
the city of Jerusalem, because of their constant uprising and constant, from the Roman perspective, troublemaking and constant commitment towards zealotry and trying to reestablish the kingdom of Israel, he finally just said, we're kicking the Jews out of Jerusalem. So in AD 135, the emperor Hadrian had the Jews exiled out from Jerusalem. And thus, at that time, there began a persecution of the Jews by the Romans. And here was another thing that needs to be said. Because the Jews were now being persecuted by the Romans, Christianity up until this point had been thought of as a Jewish cult, meaning an offshoot. What is a cult? It's simply a religion that has not stood the test of time. A cult is an offshoot typically of another religion. So in the early moments of Christianity, it was called the way in the book of the Acts, but it was seen as a breakoff of Judaism because Christianity has thoroughly Jewish roots. So because Christianity was considered a Jewish cult and once Jews began to be persecuted by the Romans, it became very expedient for Christian people to separate themselves from Jewish people at that time to say, no, we are not with them. We are not trying to establish the nation state of Israel. We are not them. We are not, in the sense, like those ancient zealots there in Jerusalem. We are not them. They are another thing. We are another thing. So in AD 135, there began an even more aggressive separation between the church and Israel of saying, now we are this new thing, so that they would not be persecuted along with the Jews. So supersessionist theology began around the turn of the first century. Also, supersessionism, remember the idea that the church has replaced Israel as the covenant people of God, has been the majority view throughout church history. The majority view, the majority theology uh, throughout church history has been supersessionism. Most of the early church fathers were, in fact, supersessionists. In fact, the one that we have on record as being attributed as the earliest supersessionist is a man by the name of Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr, one of the also Christianity's first apologists. Uh, Justin Martyr has some exceptional writings to read, but here's what he had to say about the Jews. He was the first to consider the church the new Israel. So the way Justin interpreted the Old Testament, all the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament now refers to the church as the new Israel. Because in Justin's mind, the Jewish nation had totally rejected God and his Christ. And because of that, they had been broken off and rejected. And now the church, believing Jews and Gentiles, becomes the people of God and inherits all of the promises of God from the Old Testament, all right? So now it's very, very different. Where Jews, in Abraham's covenant, keep in mind, this is how this works, okay? If you wonder why we think the way we do, 
When Jews in ancient times believed that God had given them a land, and many still do believe that to this day, and that God gave them the land that is now the modern nation state of Israel that they share with Palestinians, is that in ancient times it was believed that God had given them that, and they longed and looked for that inheritance. But once the Jews rejected God and Jesus, the understanding of the church was now different. Now God was going to not just give the land to the new Israel, God was going to give them the whole world. And this is where we get the idea of Christendom from, that everywhere the church goes, it becomes the new promised land so that the church might cover the globe and in, order, and in doing so become and fulfill the Abrahamic promise as the new covenant people of God. That all was started by Justin Martyr, believing that what God was doing with the Jews was now over. Also, Irenaeus, Irenaeus, however you want to say that, in year 145 to 202, taught the Jews were disinherited from the grace of God. If you've ever heard of someone, and I say this uh, as an acknowledgement, I would not use this term. This is a very cruel term. But um, Irenaeus was the first one of the Christ first Christian to popularize the Jew as Christ killer. And if you've heard someone call Jewish people Christ killer, they get that from Irenaeus. It's a, a very ugly term to use. Also, John Chrysostom, the St. John Chrysostom, the, probably the greatest preacher of the early church in the year 349 to 407, he lived during this time, openly declared hatred for the Jews. He was known as the man with the golden tongue. St. John Chrysostom has some fascinating writings you can still read today. They've been translated to English. But listen to what he says about the Jews. The Jews have fallen into a condition lower than the vilest animals. Debauchery and drunkenness have brought them to the level of the lusty goat and the pig. They only know one thing, to satisfy their stomachs, to get drunk, to kill and beat each other up like stage villains and coachmen. I hate the Jews because they violate the law. I hate the synagogue because it hates the law and the prophets. And it's the duty of all Christians to hate the Jews. Could you imagine a pastor anywhere in the world saying that today? St. John Chrysostom, one of the greatest preachers of the early church, openly commanded his congregation to hate the Jews. St. Augustine, in the year 354 to 430, he did not carry with him the vile tone of John Chrysostom, but he still referenced Israel as Israel, but he taught the church had inherited the covenant. Also, both the medieval Catholic church and Orthodox churches were largely supersessionist. Both the medieval Catholic church and the Orthodox churches after the church fathers were largely supersessionist. And then you get to the Protestant reformers. And of course, if you don't know it, as Baptists, we are, our heritage comes from the Protestant Reformation. Uh, I had somebody recently tell me, they said, Brother Matt, I hate seeing protests on TV. I just can't stand it. I don't think they're biblical, and I just don't agree with protesting. I said, you are a Baptist, right? And they said, yes. I said, that makes you a Protestant. You're a part of the longest protest in history. We're still protesting the Catholic Church after all these years. But the Protestant reformers were also supersessionists, like the medieval Catholic Church and Orthodox 
church before them and like the church fathers, many of them before them. Martin Luther, and this is, by the way, I'm quoting these things out loud. These are awful things. You can see how later Nazism would draw on what Martin Luther said about Jewish people. But I want us to be informed people so we can understand where these things come from. Martin Luther taught the Jew deserved to be persecuted for their rejection of Jesus. He believed that Jews could be saved, but if they rejected Christ, he taught that they should be persecuted. Let me read to you what Martin Luther said. Here are seven things that he suggested. This is so hard to hear. First, set fire to their synagogues or schools. This is to be done in honor of our Lord and of Christendom. Christendom, the new Israel which covers the whole world, which is the church. See, this is where this idea, ideas have consequences. So that God might see that we are Christians. Second, I advise that their houses also be razed and destroyed. Third, I advise that all of their prayer books and Talmudic writings in which such idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught be taken from them. Fourth, I advise that their rabbis be forbidden to teach henceforth on pain of loss of life and limb. Fifth, I advise that safe conduct on the highways be abolished completely for the Jews, for they have no business in the countryside. Sixth, I advise that usury or marketplace be permitted, prohibited to them. They can't conduct business, is what he said. And that all cash and treasure of silver and gold be taken from them. By the way, that's exactly what the Nazis did, drawing from... Martin Luther. Seventh, I recommend putting a flail, an axe, a hoe, a spade, a distaff, or a spindle into the hands of young, strong Jews and Jewish and letting them earn their bread in the sweat of their brow. But if we are afraid that they might harm us or our wives, children, servants, cattle, etc., then let us emulate the common sense of other nations such as France, Spain, Bohemia, then eject them forever from the country. That's hard to hear. That's the father of the Protestant Reformation. Also, John Calvin, 1509 to 1564. Thank God he did not share the violent uh, uh, words of Martin Luther, uh, but he also did teach that God was punishing the Jews for crucifying Christ and that that had ended their covenant with Israel. Now, that is supersessionism through the church. Now, let's get to principle number three. And by the way, if you have listened thus far, you've got to listen to the rest of this message because I am not a supersessionist. And I do not think that's what the Bible teaches. And it's unfortunate. It's tragic. And by the way, the words that I just read, you want to know why? One of the reasons it's so hard to share gospel with the Jews because they know what our fathers and our mothers did to their people. That's a hard, sober thing to consider. And also, because they know that in our day and time, where they see anti-Semitism on the rise, it's just an echo of hundreds of years of mistreatment by people who claim the name of Christ or who claim in the Muslim faith, Allah is their God. There's been so much mistreatment by Jews, by people all over the world of other faiths, and Christians are not exception to that. 
So supersessionism was not the view of the apostles. It was not the view of the apostles. After being taught about the kingdom by the resurrected Jesus, the apostles asked about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. I want you to put Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 7 on the screen. This is probably one of the best places to emphasize that the church has not replaced Israel. If you read the beginning of the first few verses of the Acts, the Acts of the early church, Jesus appears to them alive for 40 days and he teaches them for 40 days about the kingdom of God. And thus the question of the disciples is, Lord, what does it say? So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Before we go any further, Keep in mind, they have just been a part of a 40-day Bible study with Jesus when Jesus had taught them about the kingdom of God. And the logical question about what the kingdom is, is, Lord, will you restore the kingdom of Israel at this time? Notice what Jesus says. He says, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. What does that mean? Jesus is not saying, that's Old Testament theology. Jesus is not saying, what are you talking about? Haven't you read the Old Testament? Don't you know that that's the theology of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes and the Jewish nation of Israel? Don't you know that we've moved on to that from that? No. What does he say? He essentially says this, it's not the time for that to happen. What does that mean? There's still a plan for it to happen. The disciples asked the question because that's what they had been taught by Jesus that the church, excuse me, that Israel would one day be restored to the kingdom. So, also, they were probably drawing from Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. Notice what Jesus said to them. Jesus said to them, talking about the disciples, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. How is it that in the new world, in the new creation, when Jesus is in Jerusalem on his throne and surrounding him are the apostles judging the 12 tribes of Israel. If the church has replaced Israel and the Israel is a no longer a covenant people, then how is it that there is a plan for them in the future for this to be fulfilled? Thus, going back to Acts 1, they asked Jesus because Jesus was making it clear to them that God is not done with Israel. Also, Paul told the Romans that unbelieving Israel is still elect and possesses the gifts, the covenants, and the calling of God. Paul told the Romans that unbelieving Israel is still elect and still possessions the, possesses the gifts, the covenants, and the calling of God. This is why it's so important to understand what the word election means. Because if you believe that election means chosen for salvation then Romans would be teaching that unbelieving Jews are saved and right with Christ. But that's not what election means. Election does not mean chosen for salvation. It means chosen for divine service, for divine mission, that God sovereignly chose Abraham, that he might bless him, 
that he might go and be a blessing. God chose Israel to be that blessing in the Old Testament. Now, God has sovereignly chosen the church to be that vehicle of blessing. And so, look in Romans chapter 9, verses 3 through 5. Even though God has sovereignly chosen the church through election to be that blessing, notice what it says. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Who's he talking about? Jews. They are Israelites. And to them, notice what it says, belong. Not it was, but it belongs. The adoption, the glory, the covenants. The giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. What does Paul say? Paul says, talking about unbelieving Israel, all the covenants are still theirs. All the promises are still theirs. And then notice what he says in Romans 11, verses 28 through 29. And this is why, if you think the election means chosen for salvation... This creates massive problems. It's so important to understand what election means. Romans chapter 11, verses 28 through 29, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, talking about unbelieving Jews, they are beloved. They're loved by God for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are are irrevocable or irrevocable, however you want to say it. What is Paul saying? The promises are still theirs. The promises have not failed. God chose their forefathers. And because of that choice, he is still honoring his promise. And thus, they are still elect of God, according to Paul. And notice he's not talking about believing Jews. He's talking about Jews who are at this moment persecuting the church. Paul is saying, I know. I know what they're doing. But I'm telling you, the promises are theirs. Because God cannot lie. So, Paul told the Roman that the unbelieving Israel is still elect and possesses the gifts, the covenants, and the calling of God. Also, Jesus said a Jewish Jerusalem would welcome him as king in the future. This is one of the, to me, the greatest evidences that God is not done with the Jewish people, specifically in the land. Notice what he says in Matthew chapter 23, 37 through 39. O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again. What does it say? Those three words, say it with me. Until you say. Notice he does not say you'll not see me again. I'm going to the Gentile church. No. He says you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. By the way, this is the coronation phrase that you would speak of a new king. This is what they said when Jesus entered in the triumphal entry. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were embracing Jesus as the king. And Jesus is saying here in Matthew 23 to the nation of Israel, you have rejected me. But listen, I am not through with you. Because even though I came to you once and you rejected me, the next time I come, you will embrace me and I will be embraced by you. God has a future plan for Israel. Also, supersessionism flattens the New Testament distinction between Jew and Gentile to a non-distinct church 
of God. Supersessionists teach, teach that there is essentially one people of God. In the Old Testament, that people of God is called Israel. In the New Testament, that people of God is called the church. Now, we are all one in Christ. And only there's one name under heaven whereby we must be saved, and that is Jesus. There is no alternative route into the kingdom of God except through the name of Jesus, whether you are Jew or Gentile. However, both Jews and Gentiles are only saved through faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Don't forget Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Notice what it says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Even though there is one people of God, we all believe in the same way, we all have one Messiah, we are told that there is still a distinctiveness between Jews and Gentiles. This is like the, every letter in the New Testament is dealing with the fact that there still is a distinctiveness between Jews and Gentiles. Friends, nowhere in the New Testament are Jews called to abandon their Jewishness. Nowhere in the New Testament are Jews called to abandon their Jewishness. They are called to, in their Jewishness, embrace Christ. And Gentiles are told they don't have to become Jews in order to be Christians. He said, well, what about Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28? That there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, you are all one in Jesus Christ. Doesn't that mean, that right there, that there's no longer Jews in the world because the church has erased that distinction? Let me ask you something. If that's true, that also means that this is a great verse for the trans community because there's neither male nor female either. Because this is not what this means. Gosh, we are so getting banned on Facebook today. Um, <laughs> there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. Do those distinctions still persist? Are there still men and women in the world today? Yes, of course there are. This is why Paul says this is how a woman should live. This is how a man should live. There still are distinctions. This is why he says this is what you do to be a faithful Jew in the church. This is what you do to be a faithful Gentile in the church. The distinctions are not erased. This verse simply means that Jesus saves everyone. See, it's not possible to be Jewish without being connected to the land. I told you this last week. The land and the promises were linked from the promises to Abraham. If you talk to a Jew today, if you were to talk to a Jew in the first century or you were talked to a Jew in ancient Israel, there is an intrinsic link between Jew and land that was a part of the promise of Abraham from the beginning. God has nowhere commanded Jews stop being Jewish. He has commanded Jews everywhere to believe the gospel as he has commanded Gentiles to also believe the gospel and we are all one in Christ but nowhere are the Jews told to abandon their Jewishness also supersessionism fails to explain the existence of the modern state of Israel uh, in 1948 when it was founded I'm going to talk about this more tonight please come back but anyway oh it just makes my blood boil when I hear people say this 1948 was no big deal. The only reason that happened was because of the Plymouth Brethren over in Great Britain, and they restarted this religious fervor because of dispensationalism and understanding of end times theology. And it was 
essentially a bunch of Christians filling the minds of the world with an incorrect theology. And the reason that the Christians did that was because of a misinterpretation and they were breaking away from the main church. And now because they've done that, there is a modern nation state based on misunderstood theology. God didn't start Israel in 1948. That was the error of theologically inept Christians. That is so many people today who believe that. And I'm saying that is hogwash. That is absolutely ridiculous. Let me tell you why. Revelation chapter three, verses seven through eight. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David. Notice what he says, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Just a cursory reading of the Old Testament tells you this. Whatever God does, no man can undo. Whatever God does, no man can undo. And whatever God undoes, no man can redo. Here's the principle. What God blesses, no one can curse. Remember, God blessed Israel. Balaam was hired to curse them. And guess what? Every time he blessed them. Why? Because you can't curse what God blesses. And what God curses, no one can bless. We just this summer went through Habakkuk and all the false prophets were telling the Jewish kings, listen, you don't, don't worry, it's going to be blessing. Don't listen to Jeremiah. Don't listen to them. But it, listen, if God's decided to bring a curse, it doesn't matter who says they're bringing a blessing. Also, what God opens, no one can shut. That's the church of Philadelphia. And what God shuts, no one can open. And the principle remains true as this. Who scattered the Jews in AD 70? It was Jesus that said, their house is left to you desolate. It was God that scattered the Jews into a diaspora. Let me ask you this. If it is God who has scattered them, who is able to regather them? God gathers and no one can scatter. What God gathers, gathers no one can scatter. And what God scatters, ah, let me say that again. God gathers and no one can scatter. And what God scatters, no one can gather. There is no way you're going to get to me to believe that the people that God dispersed in the first century as a, a divine discipline, somehow that a bunch of English Christians got together and came up with a plan to undo what God did. No, the reason Israel was gathered is because God has allowed it to happen. Because you can't undo what God has done. And if it's being undone, it means that God is doing it. And that's another reason you need to be paying attention to the times. Finally, two more things. Oh, I ran out of time. Supersessionism is not able to explain away the language of the Old Testament prophets. I just want you to listen to Jeremiah 31 through 35. And let, tell me if the God who wrote this could in any way abandon his nation. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its ways roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from more before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation. That means a people. 
before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured, and if the foundations of the earth can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. What is God saying? If you can measure space and the sky, then okay, the promise is void. If you can explore the depths of the ocean, then okay, the promise is void. But even to this day, we still don't know what's down there in the water, and we still don't know what's up there in the sky. Why? Because God's word remains true. He's saying, listen, those things will be able to be explored before I abandon the nation of Israel. Supernecessionism also treats too lightly the fact that Jesus and all the apostles are Jewish and anticipate the time when their Jewish nation will believe. Okay, that was a marathon. What are we supposed to do with all that information? The first thing you should do is you should come tonight at six o'clock so we can talk more about this and we can talk specifically to the times in which we live. Also, friends, when you heard me read about church history and how Christians have treated Jews, if that did not break your heart, it should have. And this is all the more the reason for us to love our Jewish neighbors. It's an easy thing to hate Jews in the world today. We are called to be salt and light and not just love Jews, but love Palestinians, love everyone, but certainly not, not love the people that God has set his covenant name upon forever. And because of that, I will close with this thought. Paul says in Romans 11 that the church is now given this mission to make Israel jealous that they might return to Christ. We can't make anyone jealous if we're pointing the finger at them. Friends, our arms need to be out. Our hands need to be open. Our tears need to flow when there's tragedy and we need to love our Jewish neighbors. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. Will you take it? and allow it to turn over in our minds to help us be faithful people to your scripture today. And God forbid that we be like our fathers before us that foolishly rejected the apple of your eye. Lord, I pray for peace in Jerusalem. Lord, for, I pray for peace for all peoples. But Lord, that we would not be so foolish as to ignore what your word so plainly says. Lord, help us love the Jewish people. Help us love the Jewish nation. And Lord, help us show Christ to our Jewish neighbors. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.